Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter number 4 this morning. Philippians chapter number 4. If you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. We're going to take our reading this morning, the same passage that we have for weeks now, verses 2 through 7, to know that this morning there's going to be, and the emphasis will lay in verse number 5. That will actually be the target of our, of our sermon this morning, and seek the Lord to know exactly what He means there. So in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, we read by the hand of Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God. I implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Pray with me one more time. Father, we come to you once again. Because we need you. Lord, there's some days where I do think I come boldly to the throne room of grace. Father, by access given to me by Jesus himself. And I know that we can this morning. Seek aid and help, Father, where it's needed. And no doubt we're all in need of grace. At the same time, we recognize that there are some days where we can't come boldly. Or at least we feel like we can't. Father, it doesn't seem worthy. we, we, We don't feel worthy to be in your presence. We know that James tells us that we have not because we ask not. There's some of us who have not because we ask it according to our own lust, Father. Consume it for our own pleasure, and in that we ask amiss. Yet at the same time, Father, we recognize that there are times, Paul tells us in Romans 8, we don't know how to pray, that the Spirit of God prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Father, we take great comfort in knowing that even when we don't know what to ask, Father, that your Spirit is there interceding for us. Father, we take great comfort in knowing that we have an intercessor at the right hand of God this morning, and his name is Jesus, Savior. And that, Father, he is always interceding for those that are his. So maybe we don't know how to pray this morning. We don't know what to pray. Um, Yet at the same time, Father, we have a desire and just a a conscious need of you. Father, that's the way I feel now. It seems like the right words to say would be to ask, Father, um, for you to bless the sermon and a whole host of other things. We simply leave it in your hands, Father, to do in the next hour what you need or what you desire. And, Father, we yield ourselves completely to you in that. I do pray, Father, for faithfulness in the proclamation and at the same time, Father, a faithfulness in the receipt, not only in the congregation, but, Father, 
but most in my own heart, that even as the word is being read, Father, in my mouth, that it would speak volumes eternally to my own soul. And that in this sermon, Father, you would fashion me and my soul, Father, my inner man, that would pour out upon my hands and feet um, in such a way that it would make me more like Jesus. Father, I need him this morning. I need you this morning. I need, the, I need your spirit to work, Father, if anything is going to be accomplished. And so do these people. We recognize that if it's not laboring in Christ this morning, Father, then we have nothing. So help us to labor diligently after him. Help us, Father, to look for him um, in the sermon. Help us, Father, to labor for him in the text. And may his name be exalted. And if that's the case, we know that your work will be accomplished in the hearts of those that are yours. And Father, if there's some here that aren't, maybe even the little ones among us, may he be exalted in such a way to bring them to himself this morning. May you make his image, his character, his nature, his work so manifest, Father, that he, his presence could not be denied this morning in the fellowship of God's people. Father, this is our grand desire. We don't know what that looks like as far as cogs and wheels and the mechanics of it all. Um, thus, we simply... Um, Simply satisfied, Father, in giving it to you. So go with us now, Father, in the next hour, and use it to your end. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Once again, we return to Philippians chapter number 4. If you're visiting with us, we have been laboring through this for months now, and we find ourselves this morning in verse number 5. And the goal will be, as I've already mentioned, to devote our entire time, the next hour, um, to this single verse. And when you read that text initially, let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. I, I thought, you know, how in the world could we preach or spend an entire hour on, on, on this one text? Maybe you thought the same. But there's some tremendous truth in the verse, um, but my initial goal was I'll probably tack it on uh, to the front of a sermon out of verses 6 and 7, maybe 6 through 9, on peace, which is what we'll deal with in the coming week or two. But as I began to study the verse, as well as the next few, there really wasn't enough time to deal with both in a single sermon. With all honesty, there's more than enough material um, in this scripture and that I think will be just fine for the next hour. And not only is the material enough, but I do think that if for nothing else in my own walk in life, and I imagine in yours as well, um, that topic at hand, this concept of gentleness as the New King James translates it, will be more than applicable where we're at. That it will be more than relevant if you'll have ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. But quickly, let's once again frame our minds as to where we're at in the book. As I mentioned last week, we begin to encounter in these verses what we might refer to as rapid-fire commands. You encounter one right after the another. But if you ask me personally... I think that these are more than just isolated imperatives or isolated commands. 
But that this is actually that these commands are the fruit of Paul's exhortation in verse number one to stand firm. After a lengthy exhortation against false teachers of different sorts in chapter number three, Paul issues a command in verse number one of chapter four to stand firm. And this is no, um, and this is not foreign to Paul, nor is it really foreign to the book. It's interesting that if you follow the pattern, if you were with us uh, a couple of months ago, and I know that you may have forgotten already, it's been some time, but if you were to go back to chapter number one at the latter, latter portion, in the beginning of chapter number two, you would actually see a similar pattern, if not the same pattern. Not all the details are exactly the same, but at the end of chapter number one, you're going to get this, this military charge, this exhortation to let your conduct be worthy, in verse 27 of chapter one, of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come or whether I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. And then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, um, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And he goes into that great picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of the humility that He exhibited, and thus we are to embody in verse number 5. Let this mind be in you. So be of one mind, let this mind be in you. But in verse 27 of chapter number 1, it seems to even be, begin and, be, and launch off of this reality that you are to stand fast, He says, in one spirit. And then this military picture of, the, of an enemy or enemies at opposition with the church, which leads him to this exhortation and command for unity within the body, this love that is to be exhibited among God's people. And then he gives us that tremendous pattern of Jesus Christ himself. And you can almost see that exact same pattern here in chapter number 4. Uh, at the end of this introduction to the enemies of Christ, he's going to issue a command to stand fast. And then he's going to exhort and command, I think, what that, that standing firm or that standing fast looks like. Just as he did in chapter number 2. And, and, and instead of giving us a, a, a direct explicit reference to Jesus Christ, I think in some fashion... He is going to actually paint the picture of some of those characteristics that are embodied in the person of Christ. But there you see again there that call to unity. In verse number 2 of chapter 4, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And he, and, he, and he plays that out in verse number 3. And you could almost attribute that to the love that they're to have for one another. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 1, that you're to strive for unity. That this is our labor, and we are to labor for that unity. In verse number 4, we looked at that last week, spent the entire time speaking about the joy that the believer is 
to have. No doubt our Lord Jesus Christ was the embodiment of joy. You may not have seen that in the record of His earthly life as explicitly that you would like, but when you read the Old Testament Scriptures as well as the New, there's going to come a day when we stand in His presence, we bow before Him, and joy will be um, not only the appropriate response, but the right response. And then this, um, this hour, we're going to look at this verse number 5, which I believe, too, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, without a doubt, um, is the embodiment of this concept that we're referring to, or the King James translates as gentleness. And that this is the way that we're going to fulfill and to live out that reality of stand firm. Right? It's a military type of language calling for a true spiritual resolve in the people of God in a similar way that is required in an army that is facing their enemies. That there is this true charge, this exhortation, this command for the people of God to unite together with a general, with a, with the same character, one with another, to withstand the opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil in such a way that actually, um, according to Philippians chapter number 1, puts fear in their eyes as they dig in and progress forward, establishing the kingdom of God in this world through the rule and the reign of the gospel as it's being proclaimed and lived out among God's people. But it's interesting, isn't it? It almost seems naturally counterintuitive. If you were to stand before an American army or a Roman army and you're going to speak about the strategy against the enemy and out of the general's chest, his voice, comes this concept of men, if you're going to win the war, you're going to need some gentleness, you know? Naturally, we would want the biggest, we would want the baddest, we would want the most violent, we would want the destroyer, we would want he um, whom just his stature towers over men such to uh, instill in the enemy as they step over that that, that that territorial line to engage in the battle. You would want something um, in that man or in those bodies of men as they unite together to put the fear of, um, of that, that nation in them such that they would scurry about in fear. And in some sense, that's exactly what God is saying. When you read Philippians chapter number 1, you read other places um, throughout the Scriptures, um, there is a character which God's people are to embody such that it that it pushes back the evil in this world. Yet at the same time, I don't know that any of us this morning, that our own natural inclinations, as we think about the nature of the enemy and the danger of the world, um, would have put gentleness in that list. Yet nonetheless, the apostle does by the um, direction of the Spirit. And he gives us this command, let your gentleness be known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. So this morning we're going to wrestle with that, not exhortation, not suggestion, but that imperative, that command to let your gentleness be known. But this morning, we're going to give our time over to this reality that we as the people of God must be united together in certain character 
And that one of those character, characteristics is a demonstrable gentleness of spirit that is known to all men. It is a demonstrable, it is demonstrable. Boys and girls, it is displayed. That, that this gentleness of spirit is not just an internal reality, but that this gentleness of spirit is actually to be lived out in such a way that it is known to all men. That when someone asks about you or you become the topic of conversation with someone who you're in regular, um, in the regular presence, um, would this be something that they would know of you? That's the, that's the idea. Charles Simeon, an old Puritan, said, quote, This precept enters very deeply into the divine life. And it is only in proportion so as, it influence, as its influence is exhibited in our lives that we have any satisfactory evidence of our conversion to God. He is arguing similarly as men did, as we did last week, that joy is an essential characteristic of the Christian life. That it is the fruit of the Spirit, and that when the, the Spirit communes with the soul, and, it is, and, and, and seeds are implanted within the soil of the heart, that there are certain fruit that, um, that, that come up because of the life of God in the soul of a man. That love is one of those. Joy is one of those. Paul, I'm going to argue this morning that gentleness, at least this concept of it, too, is one of those. That last week we gave the illustration that if we were to build a car, there are certain elements that must be necessary for it to be called and identified as such and to function appropriately in that manner. And we began building it last week. So we may this, this week, boys and girls, be building what we might call a godly man or a godly woman or a godly boy or a little godly girl. And we're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And those pieces as they're being put together this morning, the piece that we're going to look at is this concept of gentleness. Gentleness. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to hang it on three nails this morning um, in the text. Number one, the mandate. The mandate. Boys and girls, that just simply means the command, the imperative, the rule to live by. Um, number two, the mission. That this mandate is to be lived out in a context, and that the context is the context of all men. And then number three, we're going to give you the motivation, and the motivation is the Lord Himself, because the Lord is at hand. That there is a command, it is a mandate, that mandate is that you are to have a gentleness of character. A gentleness of character. That this is a precept, that this is a rule, just as joy last week um, was commanded of all of God's people, and that we'll stand accountable to God one day. Um, for that, um, we too will stand accountable and responsible for the gentleness of character or the lack thereof. And last week I failed to emphasize, and I want to just initially emphasize, that whenever I speak of a command, a precept, or a rule um, for God's people, I don't do it in a, in a um, contentious type of way. I don't do it in a sense of begrudging way. I don't want you boys and girls to think this morning that as the command goes forth, that it is um, God the Father placing something upon you that is negative. Oftentimes commands or laws can be seen, rules can be seen as somewhat negative. Your mother or your father comes and they give you a rule and you can look at it as if they're trying to, to, to make you unhappy. That they're trying to put something upon you that is unpleasurable. You know, something that you don't like. But if your mother and your father, your father and mother, are um, are like God, and they're imaging the Father who is in heaven, 
then they are fashioning commands because they love you. They are giving you rules to obey because they are good for you. That when the commands of God are given to God's people, they're given as a rule of life because this is, this is good for you. That when God commands you to be joyful, He's not placing upon you some undue burden. He's not placing upon God's people something that should be received as grievous. Something as if, as if it, it, it would be like receiving the, the, the most blessed gift that anybody could ever imagine. And thinking, that's a burden, I have to put that in my home. You know, it's just going to take up more space. That that's what God was offering you last week with joy. Joy is not grievous. Joy is not begrudged. That the command to fulfill is an invitation upon, uh, placed upon the Christian to enter into the pleasures of God. That the commands of God for God's people as a rule of life are actually a gift to God's people to live on a higher plane of, he of, a, of a heavenly ascent. And that God offers you in this command. He lays this obligation upon you that you may pursue that which is glorious and grand in your life. God offers you joy this morning in Christ. He died, with his, uh, He gave it, sacrificed His life to secure it to, in part for your end. That you may walk in the very pleasures of God. Cease walking in the pleasures of this life. And that that is God's gift to you. And in a similar way. The embodiment of God's character in a gentle spirit um, is God's gift to you this morning. That it is a command, yes. You will, you will be responsible to live that out in this life. And yet at the same time, God offers you pleasures and joys forevermore. And an influence that is out of this world with your family and with the world to all men. And that God offers you a tremendous gift this morning in this command. Thus, I would commend it to you as that, a gift. A gentleness this morning is a gift of God to God's people. And to exhibit to all men. To proclaim the gospel. To display His character. And also, that you may walk in it with the utmost joy as you embody Christ. So we're going to take it as we did last week, very quickly. Um, we're going to simply try to um, define for us what the command is. Gentleness, if you're going to be gentle in spirit, you must know what it is, boys and girls. Yet at the same time as we did last week, um, it's important to know what it's not. So we're going to begin with what it's not. Right? Because it's very important for us as we approach the Scriptures and we read certain words. We don't read into them our understanding. It's easy for us to come to the text this morning and read the New King James Translation Gentleness and have a concept, an American concept, a Western concept, of what we mean by gentleness. No doubt if I was to say, think of an animal that's gentle this morning, that something would pop into your mind. And possibly a little bunny rabbit, I'm a little piglet, something that is sweet, something that is cute, something that is cuddly, something that just wouldn't harm a fly. And in some sense, that there's a reality to that, that this is embodied in that word to some extent. Yet at the same time, that's not the entirety of the word. It's not like a bunny rabbit or a little piglet. It's more like a lion. In all of its majesty, it retains a strength, a power, and an authority. That if you were to stumble in a zoo into its environment... Um, whether to fall in or to, to, to somehow engage in that environment, you know that if you walk out of there alive, it's, it's only because it allowed you to. That there is, in the embodiment of this word, is something like a, is the same concept of meekness. 
which is not in any sense a, a, a weak passivity, um, a, a harmlessness by nature because it cannot, um, but a gentleness and a meekness that is controlled, it's power under control. It's not the idea of weak, passive, and what the world calls love, an indifference and an apathy um, predicated upon um, a carelessness, like a grandfather who's gentle with his grandkids and they could do no wrong. Why? Because there's no standards. We're not speaking this morning of, of someone who is simply quiet all the time, has nothing to say, doesn't propagate any truth because they don't want to cause conflict. That's not what we're speaking. It's not what's captured in this idea. We're not speaking about a man who has no backbone, who's unwilling to, to cause a stir. No, actually, that would be the total opposite of this. That those men actually propagate the agenda of the enemy. Um, that we have to remember that, that that may seem counterintuitive, but it can't be a contrast to, to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Right? So to stand firm, to dig your feet in, to stand for truth, everything that Paul said up to this point, it can't mean um, and the opposite of that. Right? So whatever gentleness is, it is not in contrast to a military mindset of immovability. And there are certain things that you should stand for, dig your feet in, and oppose the world. And at the same time, it's, it's more than just a natural temperament. Um, that this is the work of the Spirit of God in the life of a man. The gentleness is something that, that can be mimicked externally, seemingly. But it's something truly produced by the power of God and it's cultivated by it. And, and we need to remember that. Why? Because this morning, you're going to think that, that some people are going to think that gentleness is just a, a temperament of some. Um, and it's going to be it's going to be identified as something like laid back, relaxed, passive, you know, um, somebody that you can't really rile up. What you're going to find embodied in the concept of spiritual gentleness here and the spiritual gentleness of Jesus Christ is not an indifference. And actually, that's selfish. That can be a selfish type. I can tell you from personal um, personal experience. In my own life, that sometimes laid-backness, a relaxed, apathetic, and indifferent is actually selfish in nature. Why? Because someone doesn't want to ensue or, 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 or encounter conflict. Why? Because they don't like it. That's not what we're talking about here this morning. That actually the gentleness that is embodied in Jesus Christ is the very opposite of selfishness. It actually has others in view because of a love for others and a love for God and a desire to exalt the name of Christ in Him and to display His character because of the value of other men's souls and the value of God. They actually are willing to lay aside certain things um, for them. And this is important. Why? Because some of us may walk away after this saying, I'm just not made like that. Right? I'm just from another era. I'm from another time and another geographical location. You know, I'm a strong woman from strong women. It's in my genetics. It's just who I am. I'm a strong man. We just say it like it is. No, sir. It may very well be that you're selfish and prideful and you don't repent and you need to learn to cultivate the Spirit of God 
and, and this reality. That this is actually something that is commanded um, and respond, and of all believers and that we are responsible um, to embody. So what is it? If it's not that, it's not a passivity, it's not a doormat to be walked upon, um, it's not someone without a backbone, but they actually have a backbone, they stand for truth. Um, it's not just a natural temperament, but it's something produced by the Spirit of God Himself. Um, then what is it? Well, it's hard to say. <laughs> it's, uh, and it's hard to say because what we find contained within this Word is actually something that is more of a picture than it is a definition. And that when you go to the Christians who have studied this word out in ages past and even today, um, they're going to say things like this, quote, one commentator, the word has a richer meaning than any single English word can convey. That when you come to the New King James, it's translated gentleness. When you go to the CSB, it's, it's, it's translated graciousness. When you go to the King James translation, it's moderation. You go to another, it's temperate. For you ESV onlyest, it's reasonableness. It's, um, it's, it's, it's translated almost in every translation some different type of way. And that really to get a good idea of the word, you have to take into account all of them. All of them. William Hendrickson, another commentator, says he, he translates it like this. Let your big heartedness be known to everyone. For big heartedness, he goes on to say, one may substitute any of the following. Forbearance, yieldedness, geniality, kindliness, um, gentleness, sweet reasonableness, one translation says. Considerateness, charitableness, mildness, magnanimity, generosity. He says all of these qualities are combined in the adjective noun that is used in the original. Taken together, they show the real meaning. What we have this morning is more than just words upon a page. It's as if you were to looking at a house or a building and you come upon and you see its initial presentation. But you don't understand how large it is or all the rooms that are in it until you walk around the side or the back. Or you find out that there's more than four sides. There's actually eight. That this is such a, a multifaceted word. That really, the clearest picture is in the embodiment of Jesus Christ Himself. That in a similar way as Philippians 2 gives us that humility of Christ. That really to understand the gentle nature, the graciousness of this person. This responsibility laid upon us is really, um, the, the, the necessity is for us to look into Christ Himself once again. That in 2 Corinthians 10, chapter number 1, is one of those places that we see this noun form of this verb, the noun form of this word. And Paul leads out like this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1. And what he's about to do is he's about to actually argue um, with them about his qualifications and his ministry to them. There are those who are there that are maligning the Apostle Paul, um, and he takes up. Um, warfare with them in some sense. But he says this, he says, Now I, Paul, he's introducing himself once again as he takes up this, this new task in the letter. Myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but at being absent am bold toward you. But it must be remembered that this quality is found perfectly in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, what does it mean? Well, 
Let's look once again to, to another use of its word. You don't need to turn there. But in Acts 24.4, you see the second use of the word as a noun. It's only used two times as a noun, as something that, is, that someone has. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, it's used multiple times as an adjective or something that describes a person. But in Acts chapter 24 and verse 4, it's used by a man by the name of Tertullus. He's engaging in the apostles' ministry of the gospel, and he brings a case before Felix against Paul. And when he addresses Felix, he, sa- he uses the word. So Tertullus, in addressing an authority over him, who has Paul's life in his hand, in some sense, he appeals to Felix and he says these words, Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, but I beg you to hear by your gentleness, your kindness, your courtesy, one translation says, to have a few words from us. That what we have embodied in that picture is not, not a believer necessarily, but we have the, the idea, the concept of the word. That, that you have a picture there of someone who has authority. And they have the right to say, I'm not going to hear anything that you have to say. But he defers. And in that deference, he shows a kindness to him by hearing the case. This is where we might get the, the translation, sweet reasonableness. Sweet reasonableness. It was used in the Greek culture often to speak of when authority um, demonstrated a leniency. But not just, not not in an unjust fashion. But they were lenient in a discerning way. That someone, when they were dealing with a legal issue, and they perceived that the strict application of the law would lead to injustice, that this person could discern a better course and moderate, um, extend mercy instead of wrath. That it, that it wasn't an unjust leniency. That must be said. It wasn't someone who just cast off the law because they desired to be merciful and they just felt like they couldn't go through with the punishment. No, um, it, it, they would not set aside the law at a whim. But there was a flexibility within them to be reasonable in a sweet manner or a merciful manner because they pitied the person. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this word, this person had the capacity to differentiate between what is really of vital importance and what is not. To stand like a rock by things that are vital and to be reasonable about the things that are not. You could sum it up in this question, you know, what, what hill am I going to die on? Well, this type of person understood what hill to die on. And they understood what hill not. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that the reason that they would choose not to die on that hill it was not because of a selfishness within their own soul, because they wanted to propagate their own um, purposes. But it was for the sake of that person. And it was for the sake of God's glory. That that's the idea. That this, is not, this is someone that is not so unyielding that, that he would risk the detriment of another person for the sake of a, sim, for a, for the sake of a simple formality. That there was a humble surrendering. You can write that down. Now, there was a sweet re- uh, reasonableness. But in that sweet reasonableness, it led to a humble surrender of that person's rights. That the gentle man or the gracious man would humbly and willingly surrender his own rights for the sake of that other person. Again, secularly, they understood something of this, but as a weakness. Aristotle would say something like, the one who by choice and habit does, does what is equitable and who does not stand on his rights unduly. 
but is content to receive a smaller share, though he has the law on his side. It's picturing someone who has a right to something, that has an authority. You fall into that lion's cage. I don't care who you are. If you have the law on your side, if he wants to take you out of this world, he has the authority and the power to do it. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. And this is exactly what's embodied in some sense in Philippians chapter 2 with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who else um, could compare to this reality? Like we can in a small fashion. But you really see the nature of love as the God of heaven and earth, the one who has all rights to the throne, and every creature, every item, every plant, every animal, every molecule of H2O bound together, um, who, who deserves for every ounce of this world, every molecule that's contained within existence, for, 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 for all of that to bow to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ Himself. And that who had the power and the authority at that first moment when sin entered into the heart of man, into the garden to set it all on fire and all of his progeny contained within. Yet he lays aside that right and that authority. He lays aside the majesties of heaven, humbles himself, comes to earth to take upon himself to satisfy all the law. Why? Such that He could extend mercy upon a people. To buy them out of this world for Himself. That this is the nature of the gentleness that's being spoken of here. That it's not even just casting aside the law. It's not that at all. God would never do that. But it is, it is the utilization of the law at the expense of one's own self. As Christ did. He did not lay aside the law. He fulfilled all the law. Why, as Aristotle said, from a secular fashion, to, to, to receive a smaller share than he was able, than, than, than he could, that it is one forfeiting themselves at the expense of the law. Um, why, for the benefit of another? Thus, Jesus Christ takes upon Himself um, the whole law and the guilt thereof. Why, to extend love unto a people who were not His people. And he embodies it not only in his death, but also in his life. First Peter 2, we get that great image that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he had a right to, he did not exhibit that right. When he had the authority because of the circumstances, when he was threatened, when he was beaten, he had the right to call the thousands of legions of angels at his side to dispose of them all. Yet First Peter chapter 2 says he did not. That he entrusted himself to God. William Hendrickson says once again that the lesson that Paul teaches is that true blessedness cannot be obtained by the person who rigorously insists on what he regards as his just due. But the Christian is the man who reasons that it is far better to suffer wrong than to inflict it. That the Christian concept of gentleness um, is this concept that Christ embodied not only in His death, but also in His life, that He was willing to, rather to suffer wrong than to inflict it on the account of His own rights and authority. Is this not applicable? <laughs> is this not relevant? 
Where is that gospel gentleness, that graciousness that God embodied in the life of God's people? He's calling here for a willingness to stack upon wrong upon wrong against himself such that I wrong no one. We're talking about 70 times 7 type of stuff. We're talking about a continual heart of forgiveness, not a doormat, but a willingness at the sight of true repentance to forgive for the sake of that soul. A true humility willing to lay aside anything and everything for the sake of a brother or the sake of a sister or the sake of a lost soul. Paul would be the embodiment of this. All throughout the text of Scripture, all throughout his letters, um, he is fashioning his life, saying, I have this right and I have that right, but I'm laying it aside. If it's money, then, then for the gospel's sake, I'll do it. If it's, it's, for, if it's for the sake of souls, then, then no, I have a right to drink. I have a right to eat. I have a right to do whatever it is that I, I can do. The gospel gives me liberty, but the gospel teaches me more than that. That if it's going to offend the conscience of a brother, if it's going to offend a soul, if it's going to inflict pain, then I would rather die, he's going to argue. 1 Corinthians 6 you know, is, a, is, is, is another great illustration of that reality in the life of God's people. That there should be this embodiment of God's people. Um, of gentleness such that when we interact with one another, we know our privileges, we know our rights. Yet at the same time, we know what heel to die on and we know what heel not. And as Paul goes and argues with them in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, because they're taking each other to court. That the, the, the judgment is lacking such that they cannot, they, they squabble among themselves, they're disunified, there's anger against one another. And Paul reasons with them with this in verse number 7. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you would go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong, he says? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you, you do these things to, to your brethren. That the concept is, is that, that, that he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's saying that the way that you're interacting now, you've already lost church. There is this, 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 this disagreement, this difference among you, no doubt. And to bring it before the secular courts is actually to lose altogether. It doesn't matter who wins, he argues. That you've already lost. Would it not be better, more godly, he argues, to accept the wrong, to absorb the, the, the offense? When we're talking about a godly gentleness, a graciousness, a sweet reasonableness, we're talking about a spirit that is readily able and available and willing to absorb offense rather than to, than to offend the brother. It is, it, is, it is one who is willing to suffer pain and difficulty if it means that a brother or sister prospers or that a soul would be Saved. That it's more than just a relaxed um, indifference. It's more than a natural temperament. It's more than just laying aside things because you don't want to cause conflict. I mean, it's actually um, seeing the value of another brother or sister in such a way 
that you value them greater than your own soul. Such that you're willing to give of yourself for that person. This is the embodiment of Jesus Christ. And this is not weakness. This is, it is, it is, this is, this is as strong as it gets. Um, this is that power under control. This is one knowing that at any time he could end the pain in his own body. This is that one that he could, he could, he could take up his rights and privileges and remove himself from that environment at any moment, yet he will not do it. It takes much more strength for a man to die to self than to kill his brother so that he doesn't have to endure the pain. And that this is, this is a sweet reasonableness. This is a, 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 a genuine humbleness willing to surrender to another brother or sister such that it would cause them uh, alleviate their suffering and pain at the, willing, at, the, at, the, at the cost of their own. And that this is a mark of a mature church. This is a mark of a mature church. If you were to go to 1 Timothy chapter number 3, what you would see there is that um, within the leadership of the congregation, Paul calls upon the people within that congregation to elect leaders who have this character trait. That the body of Christ should be I'm exhibiting this reality and particularly its leadership. First Timothy 3.3 3, That this man is not to be given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not covetous. Who rules his own house well. And what you can find, boys and girls, whenever you do a Bible study like this and you're just picking out words, trying to find out what they mean, that sometimes you can find out um, as much about what they mean by what's contrasted. That here what you find is that, that this type of man is, is a gentle man, not quarrelsome. He's not one that's, that's quick to violence. He's not one that is quick to anger. He's not one that when he's wronged, immediately you see an outburst of wrath. He's not one to, 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 to by his character or nature, when he is ridiculed, mocked, mimicked, criticized, you won't see him jump out or lash out with vengeance. But this is the type of man. It's not only in what a man does, but what, in what a man is, does not do. That gentleness is, it's important when you're looking for the gentle character of a man or someone is looking into the gentle character of you. And to see whether or not, as we examine our own hearts this morning, to see whether or not it's a reality. It's not only important for us to look at what we do, but what we don't. And that this is the mark of true maturity. Titus chapter 3 verse 2 actually not only lays that responsibility upon the leadership to be that example, but too upon the whole church. Every member in the body of Christ, he calls to malign no one, to be peaceable, and to be gentle. To be gentle. To be gentle. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love, this is probably my favorite quote in the whole sermon. He says, these people have a control and a mastery over themselves such that though darts are thrown, they do not find a sensitive place. You can receive them and not worry about them. It's long-suffering, able to bear and forbear, not easily offended. This is the opposite of this word. A person who is not gentle is a person who is easily offended. They can't absorb wrong. They can't suffer for righteousness' sake. They're quick to, to, to cling to their rights. I can't believe you did that to me. Don't you know who I am? 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says that a man who has mastery and control over his body such and his soul, such that he exhibits this reality, recognizes that darts will be thrown, but they find no sensitive place. You know? As a duck, it rolls off of his back. Not because he's indifferent, but by, because he understands the value of the gospel and the value of that soul. And I'm going to go ahead and give you some application here. I think it's rooted. At least it lives in the exact same environment as a contentment in Christ. You may be wondering, how in the world does someone truly get to the position to where they can be used and abused, not as a doormat, but for the sake of displaying Christ, laying aside certain rights and privileges and even authority? Um, how in the world could you do that? Uh, I'm going to give you this. It's a, it's a contentment in Christ. That this is where this is birthed out of. We're going to go on in weeks, uh, in a few weeks, to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Speaking of the contentment that a man, a woman, a child, a boy or girl in Christ is to have in him. Um, but just a little picture of that now. The Christian, um, but, but the reality is that the Christian who is ultimately satisfied in Christ and is content in him I mean, is the only person that can have this demeanor. He's the only one. Why? Because you have nothing to take from him to incite his anger. Right? He is so content with Christ. He is so consumed with the privileges that he has in him. Um, he, he clings not to the things of this world. And when he clings not to the things of this world, but is laying treasure up in heaven, he recognizes that the world, the flesh, and the devil will never be able to grip that. They can take all of this, but that will not be moved. And you have nothing in him to incite his anger, right? He holds nothing so close to his chest that you can rob him of his joy right? because his greatest treasure is in Christ. Isn't that when we're often most offended? Right? When somebody takes something that is ours, something pushes on a button that they didn't have a right to. And when you recognize that Christ is all and you're ultimately satisfied in him, um, and there really is not much left in this world that someone could take that would cause you to revolt, uh, resort to vengeance. Spurgeon says, if he can, speaking of the Christian, if he can have God's face shining upon him, he cares little if it's hills or valleys upon which he walks. It won't matter the environment, the circumstances, that with a man who is content in Christ is a man who has a gentle spirit. Why? Because he recognizes what he'll to die on, what is most valuable and what is not. The word that kind of gathers all these pictures up, commentator after commentator, um, speak of it as graciousness. I think that's probably appropriate. MacArthur says perhaps the best corresponding English word to this word gentleness is graciousness. The graciousness of humility, the humble graciousness that produces the patience to endure injustice, disgrace, mistreatment without retaliation, bitterness or vengeance. It is contentment, he says. It's contentment. Say, man, you continue to explain it and all I can see is a doormat. You know, this is, you're arguing for a pacifist or a pushover. And I would simply say, once again, was that Christ? 
Was he one to just lay aside the truth? Was he one not to preach the gospel? Was he one not to actually stir up things at times? Why? Because he was of a gentle spirit. The, the, the idea of a gentle spirit is not um, one who is totally passive such that he never engages in conflict or controversy. But while he's in conflict and controversy, he actually has a gentle spirit about him. Alright? There's, there's a difference. We're not talking about a passivity that never engages in conflict. We're talking about a conflict that is engaged with gentleness. That it is a character in which we actually engage in. You say, how do you know that? Um, 2 Timothy 2.24. There is a need for gentleness, Paul's going to argue, in our defense of the faith. 2 Timothy 2.24. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Able to teach. Patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will, perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Thus we move into our mission. This gentleness is not just a gentleness of spirit. It's not a passivity. It's not a relaxed soul. It's not someone who's indifferent and apathetic. It's not someone who's quiet all the time and avoids conflict. But it is someone who understands the value of God's glory and the value of the souls for which the Son died. Thus they are willing to engage because of a pity that they have upon this world. Because of the sin-cursed reality. Thus they're willing to engage people with the glories of the gospel, but they do so not with a quarrelsome spirit for quarrelsome sake, but they teach patiently enduring wrong with the opposition. Why? So that they may know the truth. And Paul says that God may grant them repentance. But there is a way to engage with the souls of men. And it's gentleness. It's with patience. It's with meekness. It's, it's to engage them in a way in which they do not and cannot with us. It is in, 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 in this reality um, that, that, that we are to live. That a gentle spirit is a disposition and a character of souls that actually views men and God differently. It causes us to pity the world. Um, it causes us to pity the, the, the one who is without Christ. Now, yes, there is a time when you just come out brash and you come out bold like Jesus did with the serpents um, um, in, in the synagogues. There was a hardness of heart. He dealt differently with those. But for the average person, Jesus Christ um, was, was willing and patient and long-suffering and would receive all those who would come. But that's the idea. And the mission is that this gentleness would be made known to all men. It's a passive word. It's actually not active. It's not as if you're to go around and tell everyone, like, I'm a gentle guy. <laughs> but this gentleness is to be lived out among the world, your family, within the church, outside of the church, with unbelievers, with your co-workers, in whatever capacity that God has called you. They are to look and to see a disposition of your character and soul that is different from their own and from the world. That when you're wronged at work, you don't say, vengeance is mine, saith the worker. But at times you're willing to endure wrong. At times you absorb offense. At times you, you don't eat meat. You don't drink the drink. You don't do things for the conscience sake of others. And there's this willingness. You, you realize that the reason that you're there 
in part, is to be a visible testimony of our Lord. And at the same time, not what we're saying is, is, you know, um, live life and what is it? What's the old saying? It's now it's a regular saying, you know, preach the gospel. Uh, if you need to, use words. You know, that, that's a lie in and of itself. You need the gospel message. Yet at the same time, one of the number one ways in which you can undermine the reality of a, of a profession of faith or a gospel message um, is to live in such a way that is counterintuitive of the gospel. It is to live a life not worthy in the manner of which God saved you. Um, that, that, that your life is going to uphold a gospel message. That it is going to be carried, the gospel message should be carried upon godly character, such as gentleness. And that when you relate to all those around you, the disposition of your character and soul should be distinctly different than the world. I think it's 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse 11, verse number 18, that speaks of the way Christ carried Himself in this world and that you too are as well. We're to recognize, yes, the world hates Christianity. They hate the believer. But we are not to allow that to keep us from them. They expect us to respond in a similar way that they do. They try to incite us to that. If you don't believe it, go out to the abortion clinic. Try to witness to someone on the streets. Try to engage someone who doesn't agree with you. What they've tried to do for the past several years as we've labored out there is to incite in us a similar response. Why? To catch it on video to say that's who they're dealing with. And thus, I encourage anyone before you go out there, not only to have a right understanding of the gospel, but be ready to encounter the darts of the wicked one. Why? Because they are coming. And if they can, if they can display a, 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 a character counterintuitive of that which is Christ to a world to shut you up, they will do it in a moment. That their eyes are forever on us, church. Your workers, your co-workers, your friends, your children, mother and father. They are looking at you. And they should see within us a disposition of soul that is patient. It is the long-suffering. And is this not relevant to our lives? <laughs> As you think and examine just the past week, how were you characterized? What would your little boy or your little girl say was most indicative of my daddy this week? You know? Um... He lost it every day of the week. Um, or was it, I don't understand. You know? I don't understand how he held his composure through it all because I was not the type of little boy or little girl that I ought to be. Um, that we are to manifest. The mission is that this gentleness should be embodied in such a manner um, that it is evident to all, all men. Let it be known how, not only by, by, your, by, your, by your message, but also by your life. You know what that takes? It takes time. It takes patience. It takes, it, it's, a, it's a chronic reality. It takes a life together. It's not just a single image, but it's someone watching you from day one to day end. And how often we want to shy away because we didn't start well and ruined our testimony day number one. And that's a reality, church. 
The, the mandate is a gentleness of character. The mission is to all men. Why? Because there's a disposition of, of value for their soul that you're willing to lay aside certain authority, rights, and privileges for the sake of their own soul. Why? That you might be a light to a lost and a dying world. How do we do that? We do that by, by remembering that the Lord is at hand. So number three, our motivation. Our motivation. So you see the mandate, you see the mission. What's the motivation? Because the Lord is at hand. There's two different ways that you can actually take this reality. The Lord is at hand. You can take it, number one, meaning that the Lord is near. Or you can take it to mean that the Lord is, is at hand in the sense of His second coming. I mean, the first sense that the Lord is near to His people. What a blessing of a reality. What a promise. Because you may be thinking right now, how in the world can a person do this? I mean, is this even possible? Um, I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is at hand. Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, we didn't read it this morning, but the last portion of that psalm that we opened with, with says that the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such that have a contrite spirit. Psalm 73 verse 28 says, But it was good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. That the reality this morning is, is that if you're thinking, man, I am without hope, know that Jesus Christ offers Himself this morning, His presence among His saints to be the source of godliness in your life. That here's the reality of this morning that we hope more than anything that, that, that Jesus Christ is walking among the candlesticks this morning. And if He is, He is ministering to the wicks and to the oil, refilling and trimming for the sanctification of the soul. That He is, he, he is near to you this morning, church, if you have Him and are in Him. That He avails Himself to you. That's why we can come boldly to the throne room of grace. Why? To seek help and aid in a time of need, the writer of Hebrews says. That if you're here this morning and you just cast off the reality that this is impossible for you because of a natural temperament, you're just not made like that. And 30 years of experience says you can't be that guy. I'm telling you this morning, you need to turn to Christ. This is something that He demands of you. And this is His gift to you. And may this morning He draw near to us as a church. To conform us into that very image that we may embody the character of Christ in such a way that all the world would know that we are gracious people because we serve a gracious God. But at the same time, he may be speaking of the Lord's second coming. Maybe this is appropriate. All the commentators say, I don't know. <laughs> um, but this phrase, the Lord is at hand, is used um, in that fashion in a number of ways. But I want to read to you, interestingly enough, James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, where you see similar language. Therefore, be patient, he says. Brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You get that patience is a part of this, of this gentleness. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Does that sound familiar? Stand firm. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see similar language in 2 Peter chapter number 3. And you get this sense of the reality that one day we're going to give an account to God. And isn't that a motivation as well? 
Isn't it a motivation to, to, to live right because Christ is present and near to us uh, this morning and an able help in our time of need to give us the gifts that, his, that He has died to secure for us? And yet at the same time, is it not a motivation for us to live gently, graciously with one another that all the world may know because we know that one day we're going to stand and give an account to God? Does it, does it not affect you when you wake up? Or when you lie down, you think on that great day, does it not put all things into perspective? Does it not, as you're engaging in the week with your children, or with the church, or with the world, is it not helpful to think, man, at the end of the day, it's like, is this really worth, worth it? Does it matter? Is this something that I'm willing to die for? Is this a hill to die on? As I engage in this, this reality, as I engage in this relationship, as I'm acting this way towards another. Like if today was the day, if his return is imminent, and I was to give an account, what would I say to my Lord? How would I present it to him? How would I argue my case? Or would I have a case to argue at all? Is it not motivation for us? As we evaluate eternity to cause us now to evaluate um, the reality of our, of our dealings one with another. There is coming a day when all these accounts will be settled and only one opinion will matter, the Lord's. Thus we are encouraged to live that way today. And it will help us to sift through the decisions of life. I can imagine that Euodia and Syntyche, that this was a, an exhortation, a command to them. Euodia, Syntyche, does it really matter? I'm more and more convinced day in and day out as I read this text and labor over it that Paul didn't tell us the details of it because that wasn't really what mattered. What mattered was them. And they should have been willing to lay aside whatever it was, one for the other. That's the exhortation goes. Do you really want to have that conversation with God? Do you really want to stand before Him and argue His case? And whenever I I look at it that way, I think, man, what a silly argument I would make. When you take Christ into account, when you look into Him, the one who is ultimately gentle, the lion of the tribe of Judah, The one who at any moment we have fallen into His cage and could at any moment consume us um, is a gentle Savior who pities mankind such that He's willing to lay aside certain rights and privileges that we may know Him, believe in Him, live in Him, not only now throughout all eternity. Church, Let your gentleness be known to all men. For the Lord is at hand. And this is the word that he's given us today. Let us believe it. Let us embody it. um, And let it be said of us. When we leave this life. Let us pray. Father we love and thank you. And we praise you. We thank you for for the text like this. We thank you for the reality that is before us. Father, as difficult as it is to receive on some days and maybe even today, as it compels us, Father, to examine our own souls, to inflict upon us in some sense maybe even pain and discomfort and difficulty, 
We also recognize that there is a balm, a medicine that comes near after. Father, as we turn from ourselves and turn to you in Christ, um, there is a medicine to the soul, Father, and it is the gospel realities. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you labor alongside us in your Son by the power of your Spirit, Father, not only in the, uh, before the difficult things, but through the difficult things, Father, and on the other side. Father, we recognize um, the good that it is for us, that the gift that you've given us, Father, in this reality, um, that the true strength and power of the gospel, Father, comes in not only what we have, but what we're willing to give. So help us to control ourselves, Father, for the sake of others. Help us to, to see men like Christ does. And Father, help us to carry ourselves in such a manner that's honoring to Christ. Make us quick, Father, slow to anger and quick to absorb offense. Father, if we are angry, and at times it's right, may it be a righteous anger, Lord, um, not defending ourselves, but in defense and the sake of others for the glory of God and for His virtue. Father, we need you to do this work because we are not naturally disposed to this type of thinking. Father, we love ourselves. So help us, Father, to die to ourselves and to cling to Christ. And Father, for this, we labor. For this is our pursuit. For this, Father, we need you to go with us. So go with us now. In Christ's name, amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. And then we'll move to our communion time.